Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List Podcast. We're talking about Chapter 87. What do we make of Athelny? Athelny now. Athelny. What a weird name. I kept saying Athenly, I think, but it's Athelny. Athelny. I don't know how to say it. Fixer Bluth said, I just thought about yesterday's comment about men being attractive and women not. Rather than this being Philip's take on the characters we've met so far, could it actually be the author's bias coming through? Somerset didn't find women attractive, so describing them as as such might have been more difficult for him. Anyway, that occurred to me while listening to the podcast today and thought I'd throw it out. Yeah, I mean, the thought had crossed my mind as well. He was a homosexual, so maybe his bias bled through into the character. I mean, I think I think we need to give him more credit than that, don't we? Because as well, an author needs to project themselves into the mind of their character. And if the character he's trying to create is, you know, a straight male, they're going to find women attractive. Um, right? I mean, I... Or even not necessarily so, but I think that aside, an author is able to project themselves into a character um, or sorry I should say to bring a character to to life quite skillfully and they they're able to they're, they're able to create a, a full fully alive well-rounded character that shares none of their biases um, that's what a good author can do and even a bad author can do that you know pretty well Um if your bias is coming through in all of your characters, the book is not going to work. So I think an author is much more aware of what they're doing than than what you're sort of suggesting there. It does seem like that's what's happening, and it could well be, but that would make him a, you know, a pretty crummy author if that's what was happening. Um, so I don't know. Um, that's the only reason I'm hesitant to say that, but... But you are right, it does seem a lot that way. Okay, Swims to the Mummerfish, he said this. Fun facts, Inigo Jones was the first significant English architect in the early modern period, uh, 1500s, 1600s, and the first to employ Vitruvian rules of proportion and symmetry in his buildings. As the most notable architect in England, Jones was the first person to introduce the classical architecture of Rome and the Italian Renaissance to Britain. More than a thousand buildings have been attributed to Jones, but only a very small number of those are certain to be his. Well, there you go. Um, uh, sorry, I'm just reading over that. Um, yeah, that's interesting. There was a mention of that architect, and that's why I love this subreddit. You know, all this um, this project, this podcast, this all this community. That's what I'll say, because. You know, someone, if, if there's just a mention of an obscure name in the chapter, someone will dig up the information on who that was. And I, and I just think that's so cool. Regarding Althini's five foot five height, at the outbreak of the Great War, the author, at the age of 40, was five foot six, and both too old and too short to enlist in the military. So he joined a British Red Cross ambulance unit attached to the French army, becoming like his contemporaries, one of many literary ambulance drivers. Oh, very interesting. Sunday roast, aka Sunday dinner. I discovered Sunday dinner while touring Great Dinner. What? <laughs> Sorry, I read that so wrong. I discovered Sunday dinner while touring Great Britain. I had it very... Oh my God. I had it every Sunday. 
is amazing. Sorry, I'm reading terribly at the moment. The Sunday roast is a traditional British meal that is typically served on Sunday, consisting of roasted meat, roast potatoes, mashed potatoes, and accompaniments such as Yorkshire pudding, stuffing, gravy, and mint sauce. This is a tradition that I can get behind. Um, Athelny tells Philip of Halicon, the female bird who carries her mate on her wings when the male bird is tired. He doesn't get it quite right. It's based on a Greek myth. The male is actually dead. When her husband's body appeared before her floating towards the shore, Alcyone, filled with grief, threw herself into the sea, but before she hit the water, she changed instantly into a bird. So as she flew, skimming along the water surface towards the lifeless body, her throat poured forth sounds full of grief, her voice lamentation. When she touched Saix's mute and bloodless body, she folded it with her new formed wings and tried to kiss it with her horny beak. Feeling her deep... What are we talking, What are we reading about here? We've gone way off the topic. Uh, feeling her deep grief, the gods out of pity changed the couple into a pair of kingfishers. Ever since, the legend goes, Ali Cohn carries her dead mate to his burial, then builds a nest and launches it out to sea. Okay, well, all right, we've got all the backstory we need. Um, Lady Rostova said, This sexist dude with the weird name disgusts me. He was sexualizing his 15-year-old daughter. What the heck, dude? Um, yeah, he kind of was. Was he sexualizing her? I suppose he... Yeah, I suppose he was saying he wants her to get married. Um, he was doing it in a very crass way, I think. But I also can kind of understand the sentiment of like being proud of how beautiful your budding young woman of a daughter is. But also, yeah, he's very... Uh, well, he even says that his, his views are antiquated. So he's got an awareness of it, um, which, <laughs> I don't know, does that make it worse or better? Um, I kind of feel like it makes it better because he's aware of it and it's almost like uh, like an act. Like there's a, It's almost like there's a bit of um, make-believe to it, like play acting and like the whole family's in on it. Almost like, uh, I don't know. You know what I mean? They're almost playful about it. Like the whole family's in on this fact that he's sticking to these antiquated um, uh, kind of views on a woman's place. But then it almost seems like a bit of a joke or lighthearted in a weird way. Is that weird? Is that weird that it feels like that? Um, but then I suppose the question is if you pushed him on it, you know, would he actually insist on those ways or is it just a kind of play act that they're doing um to sort of act out the old the older uh, values <clears throat> either way he's a dickhead uh i'm not condoning it but i'm just saying there was a weird kind of vibe about it uh which is a bit difficult to quite explain i don't know if i have even worded that quick correctly but um i don't know odd odd um, I liked him less and less as the chapter went on, um, which was, you know, I didn't really like him much to start with. Uh, I really disliked him by the end. Let's read chapter, what are we up to? 80, 88. 88, such a straightforward number, 88. And this is the Roman numeral, L-X-X-X-V-I-I-I. Jeepers, creepers. Um... 
And this is quite a long chapter. This is the longest chapter we've had in a while. So um, settle in. Uh, get yourself a cup of tea. We'll probably be here for another 15 minutes by the looks of this. So here we go. There was a knock at the door and a troop of children came in. They were clean and tidy now. Their faces shone with soap and their hair was plastered down. They were going to Sunday school under Sally's charge. Athelney joked with them in his dramatic exuberant fashion and you could see that he was devoted to them all. His pride in their good health and their good looks was touching. Philip felt that they were a little shy in his presence and when their father sent them off, they fled from the room in evident relief. In a few minutes, Mrs. Athelney appeared. She had taken her hair out of the curling pins and now wore an elaborate fringe. She had on a plain black dress, a hat with cheap flowers, and was forcing her hands, red and coarse from much work, into black kid gloves. I'm going to church, Athelney, she said. There's nothing you'll be wanting, is there? Only your prayers, my Betty. They won't do you much good. You're too far gone for that, she smiled. Then turning to Philip, she drawled, I can't get him to go to church. He's no better than an atheist. Doesn't she look like Reuben's second wife, cried Athelney. Wouldn't she look splendid in a 17th century costume? That's the sort of wife to marry, my boy. Look at her. I believe you'd talk the hind leg of a donkey, Athelney, she answered calmly. She succeeded in buttoning her gloves, but before she went, she turned to Philip with a kindly, slightly embarrassed smile. You'll stay to tea, won't you? Athelney likes someone to talk to, and it's not often he gets anybody who's clever enough. Of course he'll stay to tea, said Athelney. Then, with his wife gone, I make a point of the children going to Sunday school, and I like Betty to go to church. I think women ought to be religious. I don't believe myself, but I like women and children too. Philip, straight-laced in matters of truth, was a little shocked by this airy attitude. But how can you... How can you look on while your children are being taught things you don't think are true? If they're beautiful, I don't mind if they're not true. It's asking a great deal that things should appeal to your reason as well to your sense of the ascetic. I wanted Betty to become a Roman Catholic. I should have liked to see her converted in a crown of paper flowers, but she's hopelessly Protestant. Besides, religion is a matter of temperament. You'll believe anything if you have the religious turn of mind, and if you haven't, it doesn't matter what beliefs you were instilled into you, you will grow out of them. Perhaps religion is the best school of mortality. It is like one of those drugs you gentlemen use in medicine which carries another in solution. It is of no efficacy in itself but enables the other to be absorbed. You take your morality because it is combined with religion. You lose the religion and the morality stays behind. A man is more likely to be a good man if he has learned goodness through the love of God than through a perusal of Herbert Spencer. To this, this was contrary to all Philip's ideas. He still looked upon Christianity as a degrading bondage that must be cast away at any cost. It was connected subconsciously in his mind with the dreary services in the cathedral at Turkenbury. And the long hours of boredom in the cold church at Blackstable and the morality of which Athenley spoke was to him no more than a part of the religion which a halting intelligence preserved when it had laid aside the beliefs which alone made it reasonable. But while he was meditating a reply, Athelney, sorry, while he was me meditating a reply, Athelney, more interested in hearing himself speak than in discussion, broke into a tirade upon Roman Catholicism. For him, it was an essential part of Spain, 
and Spain meant much to him because he had escaped to it from the conventionality which during his married life he had found so irksome. With large gestures and in the emphatic tone which made what he said so striking, Athelney described to Philip the Spanish cathedrals which, with their vast dark spaces, their massive gold of the altar pieces and the sumptuous iron work, gilt and faded, the air laden with incense, the silence. Philip almost saw the cannons in their short surplices of lawn, the acolytes in red, passing from the sacristy to the choir. He almost heard the monotonous chanting of vespers. The names which Athelney mentioned, Avila, Tarragona, Saragossa, Segovia, Cardova, were like trumpets in his heart. He seemed to see the great grey piles of granite set in old Spanish towns amid a landscape tawny, wild and wind-swept. I've always thought I should love to go to Seville, he said casually, Seville, when Athelney, with one hand dramatically uplifted, paused for a moment. Seville, cried Athelney. No, no, don't go there, Seville. It brings to the mind girls dancing with castanets, singing in gardens by the Gordel Quivir, bullfights, orange blossom, mantlers, Montanes de Manila. It is the Spain of comic opera and Montmartre. Its faxile charm can offer permanent entertainment only to an intelligence which is superficial. Theophile Gautier got out of Seville all that it has to offer. We who come after him can only repeat his sensations. He put large, fat hands on the obvious, and there is nothing but the obvious there. And it is all finger-marked and frayed. Murillo is its painter. Athelney got up from his chair, walked over to the Spanish cabinet, let down the front with its great gilt hinges and gorgeous lock, and displayed a series of little drawers. He took out a bundle of photographs. Do you know El Greco? he asked. Oh, I remember one of the men in Paris was awfully impressed by him. El Greco was the painter of Toledo. Betty couldn't find the photograph I wanted to show you. It's a picture that El Greco painted of the city he loved, and it's truer than any photograph. Come and sit at the table. Philip dragged his chair forward, and Athelney set the photograph before him. He looked at it curiously for a long time in silence. He stretched out his hand for other photographs, and Athelney passed them to him. He had never before seen the work of that enigmatic master, and at the first glance he was bothered by the arbitrary drawing. The figures were extraordinarily elongated, the heads were very small, the attitudes were extravagant. This was not realism, and yet, and yet even in the photographs you had the impression of a troubling reality. Athelney was describing eagerly with vivid phrases, but Philip only heard vaguely what he said. He was puzzled. He was curiously moved. These pictures seemed to offer some meaning to him, but he did not know what the meaning was. There were portraits of men with large melancholy eyes, which seemed to say, you knew not what. There were long monks in the Franciscan habit or in the Dominican, with distraught faces, making gestures whose sense escaped you. There was an assumption of the Virgin, there was a crucifixion, in which the painter, by some magic of feeling, had been able to suggest that the flesh of Christ's dead body was not human flesh only, but divine, and there was an ascension in which the Saviour seemed to surge up towards the Empyrean, and yet to stand upon the air as steadily as though it were solid ground. 
the uplifted arms of the apostles, the sweep of their draperies, their ecstatic gestures gave an impression of exaltation and of holy joy. The background of nearly all was the sky by night, the dark night of the soul, with wild clouds swept by strange winds of hell and lit luridly by an uneasy moon. I've seen that sky in Toledo over and over again, said Atholny. I have an idea that when at first El Greco came to the city, it was by such a sight, such a night, sorry, and it made so vehement an impression upon him that he could never get away from it. Philip remembered how Clutton had been affected by this strange master, whose work he now saw for the first time. He thought that Clutton was the most interesting of all the people he had known in Paris. His sardonic manner, his hostile aloofness, had made it difficult to know him, but it seemed to Philip, looking back, that there had been in him a tragic force, which sought vainly to express itself in painting. He was a man of unusual character, mystical after the fashion of a time that had no leaning on to mysticism. He was impatient with life because he found himself unable to say the things which the obscure impulses of his heart suggested. His intellect was not fashioned to the uses of the spirit. It was not surprising that he felt a deep sympathy with the Greek, who had devised a new technique to express the yearnings of his soul. Philip looked again at the series of portraits of Spanish gentlemen with ruffles and pointed beards, their faces pale against the sober black of their clothes and the darkness of the background. El Greco was the painter of the soul, and these gentlemen, wan and wasted, not by exhaustion but by restraint, with their tortured minds, seemed to walk unaware of the beauty of the world for their eyes look only in their hearts, and they are dazzled by the glory of the unseen. No painter has shown more pitilessly that the world is but a place of passage. The souls of the men he painted speak their strange longings through their eyes, their senses are miraculously acute, not for sounds and odours and colour, but for the very subtle sensations of the soul. The noble walks with the monkish heart within him, and his eyes see things which saints in their cells see too. And he is astounded. Unastounded, sorry. <laughs> and he is unastounded. His lips are not lips that smile. Philip, silent still, returned to the photograph of Toledo, which seemed to him the most arresting picture of them all. He could not take his eyes off it. He felt strangely that he was on the threshold of some new discovery in life. He was tremulous with a sense of adventure, he thought for an instant of the love that had consumed him. Love seemed very trivial beside the excitement which now leaped in his heart. The picture he looked at was a long one with houses crowded upon a hill. In one corner a boy was holding a large map of the town. In another was a classical figure representing the river of Tagus. And in the sky was the Virgin, surrounded by angels. It was a landscape alien to all Philip's notion, for he had lived in circles that worshipped exact realism, and yet here again, strangely to himself, he felt a reality greater than any achieved by the masters, in whose steps, humbly, he had sought to walk. He heard Athelny say that the representation was so precise that when the citizens of Toledo came to look at the picture, they recognised their houses. The painter had painted exactly what he had saw, but he had seen with the eyes of the spirit. There was something unearthly in that city of pale grey. It was a city 
of the soul seen by a wan light that was neither that of night nor day. It stood on a green hill, but of a green not of this world, and it was surrounded by massive walls and bastions to be stormed by no machines or engines of man's invention. But by prayer and fasting, by contrite sighs of the mortifications of the flesh, it was a stronghold of God. Those grey houses were made of no stone known to masons. There was something terrifying in their aspect, and you did not know what men might live in them. You might walk through the streets by be unamazed to find them all deserted, and yet not empty, for you felt a presence invisible and yet manifest to every inner sense. It was a mystical city in which the imagination faltered like one who steps out of the light into darkness. The soul walked naked to and fro, knowing the unknowable and conscious, strangely of experience, intimate but inexpressible of the absolute. And without surprise, in that blue sky, real with a reality that not the eye but the soul confesses, with its rack of light clouds, driven by strange breezes like the cries and the sighs of lost souls, you saw the Blessed Virgin with the gown of red and a cloak of blue, surrounded by winged angels. Philip felt that the inhabitants of the city would have seen the apparition without astonishment, reverent and thankful, and have gone their ways. Athelny spoke of that mystical writers of of the mystical writers of Spain, of Teresa de Avila, San Juan de la Cruz, Fray Luis de Leon. In all of them was that passion for the unseen which Philip felt in the pictures of El Greco. They seemed to have the power to touch the incorporeal and see the invisible. They were Spaniards of their age, in whom were tremulous all the mighty exploits of a great nation. Their fancies were rich with the glories of America and the green islands of the Caribbean Sea. In their veins was the power that had come from age-long battling with the moor. They were proud, and they were masters of the world, and they felt in themselves the wide distance, the tawny wastes, the snow-capped mountains of Castile, the sunshine blue sky, and the flowing plains of Andalusia. Andalusia. Life was passionate and manifold, and because it offered so much, they felt a restless yearning for something more. Because they were human, they were unsatisfied, and they threw this eager vitality of theirs into a vehement striving with the ineffable. Athelny was not displeased to find someone to whom he could read the translations with which for some time he had amused his leisure. And in his fine, vibrating voice, he recited the canticle of the soul and Christ, her lover, the lovely poem which begins with the words, En una noche oscura, and the noche serena of Fray Louis de Leon, he had translated them quite simply, not without skill, and he had found words which at all events suggested the rough-hewn grandeur of the original. The pictures of El Greco explained them, and they explained the pictures. Philip had cultivated a certain disdain for idealism. He had always had a passion for life, and the idealism he had come across seemed to him, for the most part, a cowardly shrinking from it. The idealist withdrew himself because he could not suffer the jostling of the human crowd. He had not the strength to fight, and so called the battle vulgar. He was vain, and since his fellows would not take him at his own estimate, consoled himself with despising his fellows. For Philip, this type was Hayward, 
fair, languid, too fat now and rather bald, still cherishing the remains of his good looks and still delicately proposing to do exquisite things in the uncertain future, and at the back of this were whisky and vulgar amours, amours of the street. It was in reaction from what Haywood represented that Philip clamoured for life as it stood, sordidness, vice, deformity did not offend him. He declared that he wanted man in his nakedness, and he rubbed his hands when he, when an instance came before him of meanness, cruelty, selfishness, or lust. That was the real thing. In Paris he had learned that there was neither ugliness nor beauty, but only truth. The search after beauty was sentimental. Had he not painted an advertisement of chocolate menier in a landscape in order to escape from the tyranny of prettiness? But here he seemed to divine something new. He had been coming to it all hesitating for some time, but only now was conscious of the fact he felt himself on the brink of a discovery. He felt vaguely that here was something better than the realism which he had adored, but certainly it was not the bloodless idealism which stepped aside from life in weakness. It was too strong. It was virile. It accepted life in all its vivacity, ugliness and beauty, squalor and heroism. It was realism still, but it was realism carried to some higher pitch, in which facts were transformed by the more vivid light in which they were seen. He seemed to see things more profoundly through the grave eyes of those dead noblemen of Castile and the gestures of the saints, which at first had seemed wild and distorted, appeared to have some mysterious significance. But he could not tell what the significance was. It was like a message which it was very important to, for him to receive. But it was given him in an unknown tongue, and he could not understand. He was always seeking for a meaning in life, and here it seemed to him that a meaning was offered, but it was obscure and vague. He was profoundly troubled. He saw what looked like the truth, as by flashes of lightning on a dark stormy night you might see a mountain range. He seemed to see that a man need not leave his life to chance, but that his will was powerful. He seemed to see that self-control might be as passionate and as active as the surrender of passion to passion. He seemed to see that the inward life might be as manifold, as varied, as rich with experience as the life of one who conquered realms and explored unknown lands. All right, there we go. There's that chapter done. Whoa, that was a longie. Philip's having a spiritual awakening, an artistic awakening. Um, have your say about it over on the subreddit. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you tomorrow.